podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our embarrassing loss to Empoli on Sunday. In part two, I'll review our Primavera match against Fiorentina on Saturday. And in part three, I'll review our latest Femenile match, which was against Sassuolo, also on Sunday. So let's begin with our loss to Empoli on Sunday. As I'm sure you're aware, that match finished 3-2 in favor of Empoli. Two veterans of the club scored on either side of the break. Chiro Merton scored his 146th career goal for Napoli, while Lorenzo Insigne scored his 121st. That goal tied him with Matic Hamsik for second most goals scored for Napoli. I was mistaken in my preview when I said that he was two goals behind Maricchiaro. That's what I get for using Wikipedia instead of Transfermarkt. In any event, we seem to be coasting towards a comfortable victory, and then of course we suffered one of the worst meltdowns in club history with only 10 minutes of normal time left to play. In fact, it's been 80 years since we lost a match after going ahead 2-0. On March 22nd, 1942, Antonio Voyak's Napoli blew a 3-0 lead to lose 5-3 to Torino. In this match, Liam Henderson pulled one back in the 80th minute before Andrea Pinamonti scored a doppietta. Those three goals were scored over a span of seven minutes. That effectively extinguished whatever little hope we had left of winning the Scudetto, but sealing our fate on the Scudetto is not what infuriated Napoli fans around the world. It was the utter collapse, the inexcusable collapse, that sent all of us and the media into a tailspin of speculation. We'll cover all of that in this review. I'm not even going to bother revisiting my three keys to the match because frankly, the way this collapse happened, they really don't matter. But first, let's review the starting lineups. Empoli lined up in a 4-3-1-2 formation with Guglielmo Vicario in goal. Mattia Viti and Sebastiano Luperto started at center back. Fabiano Parisi played at left back and Peter Stojanovic played at right back. Christian Aslani played in the center of the midfield with Filippo Bandinelli to his left and Simon Zerkovsky to his right. Valerio Vera started as the trequartista and Andrea Pinamonti and Patrick Cutrone played together up top. For Napoli, Luciano Spalletti made two changes to the squad he fielded against Roma and one change to our predicted 11. He lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Alex Meret getting his second consecutive start in goal. Juan Jesus started over the suspended Kaladu Koulibaly alongside Amir Rachmani at center back. Mario Rui played at left back and Alessandro Zanoli started at right back. Andre Frank Zamboangisa and Fabian Ruiz played in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Chucky Lozano started on the right wing. Dries Merton started in the number 10 where I was expecting Piotr Zielinski to play and Victor Osman started at striker. So those were the starting lineups. Next let's get to the match. 
like I said, I'm mostly going to focus on the final 10 minutes of the match because that's all that really matters and that's correctly all that anyone is talking about. I'll start with the match itself and then that will naturally become a broader discussion. Now, for those of you who have listened to the pod for a while, you know that I try to be as objective as possible. You know that I try to explain things as logically as possible. You might even go so far as to say that I make excuses for the club. Personally, I think there's a difference between explaining something and making excuses. But either way, even I cannot justify what happened in the final 10 minutes of this match. It is simply inexcusable. And for me, that collapse fall squarely on the shoulders of the players. Now, I know some people will say Spalletti is responsible. He picked the starting 11 and he made the substitutions, but I do not put the collapse on Spalletti. He's certainly a part of the broader problem, but I don't blame him for the collapse in this match. As far as the starting 11 goes, I don't really see how he could have started a stronger squad. According to Paolo Barghigia of Corriere dello Sport and Mediaset, Ospina wasn't able to start because he was too weak from the flu that he had dealt with all week, so Meret had to start. Koulibaly was suspended, so we had to start Juan Jesus. Lobotka is hurt, so he had to start Fabian and Anguissa. I don't think starting Diego Demme over either of those players would have made the squad any stronger. Maybe he could have played Zielinski in a 4-3-3, but we've all been begging for Mertens to play with Osimhen, so we can't turn now and say that Spalletti got that wrong. To be honest, I think Spalletti only made that choice after Inter beat Roma, which meant even before this match, our chances of winning the Scudetto were fairly slim. And of course, Merton scored in this match, so I don't think anyone can argue that that was a poor decision. As far as the substitutions go, you can criticize Spalletti for replacing Zanoli with Malqui given Malqui's involvement in the goals we conceded, but Barghija also reported that Zanoli was replaced because he too wasn't feeling well. I was surprised to see him in the starting 11 because the club reported he missed training on Saturday due to a stomach flu. I did think it was odd that Spalletti replaced Lozano with Zielinski and played Zielinski as a right winger, but that only lasted 9 minutes before he removed Mertens, moved Zielinski into his more natural position, and brought Politano in to play on the right wing. But we didn't concede any goals during those 9 minutes. I saw some people faulting Spalletti for removing two attacking players in Lozano and Mertens, Maybe he could have left Lozano in a bit longer, but Politano is a like-for-like replacement. Mertens played 77 minutes, which is plenty for a 35-year-old. But all of that aside, we had a 2-0 lead with 10 minutes left to play against a club who had not won a single match in 16 consecutive rounds. I don't care who is on the field, whether it's the backups or the backups to the backups, the players need to be able to close out the match. We gifted Empoli two goals. The first was a direct consequence of Malqui trying to dribble out of the back and losing the ball in our own end. Now, I will put part of the blame on Spalletti for that because moments before the turnover, Meret played three long balls towards the middle of the park and all three times we eventually gave the ball right back to Meret. So it looked to me like we had run out of ideas and sometimes the worst substitutions are the ones that you don't make. I know Zielinski was fresh, but perhaps, in hindsight, it would have been wise to bring on Diego Deme to give us more security and another passing option in the midfield. I don't know what happened with Anguissa and Fabian in this match because they were so good together earlier in the season, but I thought they were both terrible, especially Anguissa. 
even before we scored, they were leaving massive holes in the midfield, which was largely why Empoli had so many chances earlier in the match. There was definitely a feeling of uneasiness up until Insigne scored that second goal, and if we're being honest, we were probably fortunate to be up 2-0 at that point, because Empoli squandered a lot of quality chances. Pinamonti, Bandinelli, Cutrone, Barami all had clear-cut chances and failed to even hit the target. Then we had the Meret giveaway. Now, I've been a Meret defender for a long time. I've said numerous times that he needs to play consistently before we judge him, but there is no defending this play. He was far too casual on the ball, and Pinamonti made him and all of Napoli and all of us pay for it. The first thing I thought of when I saw this was Gattuso saying that Meret doesn't start because of his footwork. We saw both of Meret's biggest flaws in this one play. He has low confidence and he is poor with his feet. That's unfortunate because he was otherwise having a decent match. He came off of his line a few times in the first half and swept away some dangerous balls and he made a couple of decent saves. But this mistake erased all of that. At that point, this match was already a disaster. The third goal was really just the icing on the cake. I have two comments on that goal. The first is that Empoli were trying that exact play all match where they played the curling ball behind our back line. They overhit the pass four or five times and nothing came of those chances, but Bayrami got the ball just right on that occasion. The second comment is that I think this match, and the previous two for that matter, demonstrated just how important Giovanni Di Lorenzo is to this team. We have a record of one win, one draw, and two losses in the four matches that he's been out. I don't know if he would have prevented any of the goals in the Fiorentina and the Roma matches, but I definitely think he would have made a difference in this one. It's too bad that Zanoli got sick, because I think he's actually been doing a solid job of covering for Di Lorenzo, at least defensively, but Kevin Malqui simply is not good enough. I think it's pretty telling that he's lost out his backup position to a youngster who had no Serie A experience prior to this season. It probably goes without saying that Malqui will not be a part of this squad next season. That's a good segue to the next subject I want to talk about, which is, after this latest debacle, who should be a part of this squad next year? That's something I'll cover in more detail when the season is over, but the reason I mention it now is because when I look at this team over the past few seasons, the one consistent is the players. Yes, we've purchased a few players and we've sold a few players, but the core of this team hasn't changed a whole lot. Insigne, Mertens, Fabian, Zielinski, Koulibaly, Mario Rui, Meret, they've all been with the club for a while now. I look at this core of players and I look at the rest of the squad, and what stands out to me is that we do not have any serial winners. Yes, Insigne, Di Lorenzo, and Meret won the Euros and Koulibaly won AFCON, but that was the first time any of them won anything of importance. Arguably, the player with the weakest mentality on our team is our captain. Now, I know Insigne was excellent last season, but I question whether he is truly captain material. And if our captain has such a weak mentality, what impact does that have on the rest of the squad? Now, as friend of the pod Gaetano Solazzo pointed out, Albiol and Higuain were both winners when they joined the club, and we still didn't win anything back then, which is true. But their Napoli took us to a 91-point season in 2017-18, and in most seasons, 91 points wins you the Scudetto. It just so happens that that season, Juve happened to collect 95 points. Meanwhile, 
we went from Sari to Ancelotti to Gattuso and finally to Spalletti and none of them have been able to improve the mentality of the players. Judging from our results earlier in the season, I thought Spalletti had done it but we seem to have fallen back to our old ways. I mentioned this last episode but I think part of our struggles of late are due to the fact that we're not doing the same things that we did at the start of the season. Spalletti used to talk about playing compact, playing with 30 yards between the attacking line and the defensive line. We were stretched well beyond 30 yards in this match, which explains why there was so much space in the midfield. Early in the season, we saw short quick passes and patterns of play. Now we very predictably hoof the ball long for Osimhen and tell him to go chase it. Spalletti was supposed to be the tactical manager that Gattuso was not, and personally, I still think he is. Spalletti is still a more tactically sound manager than Gattuso, but we're no longer seeing those tactics on the field. A quick word on Gattuso, because the Gattuso defenders have been quick to note that at this time last season, Gattuso had accumulated two more points than we have at the moment. We're currently on 67 points. Last season, we had 69 points after 34 rounds. The difference was that Inter ran away with the Scudetto last season, whereas no one has seized the opportunity this season. We closed last season with three wins and a draw, which means even if we win our final four matches, we would only match our point total of 79 from last season. Now, the people who are bringing this up are not suggesting that we should have kept Gattuso. I think everyone knows that the relationship with De Laurentiis was damaged beyond repair, so we were never going to extend Gattuso anyways. However, many Gattuso supporters were berated for supporting him last season, so Spalletti's inability to improve the squad, at least as far as the results go, is somewhat of a redemption for the Gattuso supporters. Finally, we hardly conceded any goals at the start of this season. We conceded a total of only 4 goals during our 12-game unbeaten run. Meanwhile, we've conceded 7 goals in our last 3 matches, so Spalletti certainly deserves his share of the blame. Now, I know I've said the goal changed mid-season, so in that sense, this season has been a failure, but Spalletti was indeed hired to finish in the top four. I honestly don't know who we would have hired if the goal at the start of the season was to win the Scudetto. It's not as if Italiano or De Zerbi have a track record of winning Scudetti, and we all know what happened the last time we hired a Scudetto winning manager. Naturally, after a performance like this one, Rumors have begun that Spalletti could get the sack. Those rumors generally surface in one of two ways. Either the club intentionally leaks that information, or the rumors are entirely made up. I can't say which of the two is the case this time around, but Spalletti has been mentioning De Laurentiis' name in the media of late. After the Fiorentina match, he said that De Laurentiis always tells him he makes his changes too late. Ahead of this match, he said that he hasn't spoken to De Laurentiis in a while, and then after this match, he said that he told De Laurentiis to keep Mertens for next season. I'm really torn about this one. On one hand, I am vehemently opposed to replacing your coach season after season. I think that makes it impossible to grow anything meaningful. I also think Juntoli has been actively negotiating with players to fit into Spalletti's system. So if we change manager, we could end up with a lot of players who are not suited to the new manager system. On the other hand, I recognize that Spalletti has never won a Scudetto, and with Inter, Milan, and Juve improving, it will be more difficult to win the Scudetto next season. To put it another way, if we weren't able to win the Scudetto this season, 
then I don't have a lot of confidence that we'll win the Scudetto next season. That said, I think Spalletti will get another season in charge so long as we finish in the top four. We were actually quite fortunate that the three teams that could contend for a Champions League position all lost this round. Roma lost to Inter, Fiorentina lost to a shockingly informed Salernitana, and Lazio suffered a very late defeat at the hands of Milan. So we're currently 9 points clear of Roma in 5th. If Fiorentina win their game in hand, we'd be 8 points clear of them with 4 matches remaining. All we would need is a win and a draw over our final 4 matches to all but guarantee Champions League qualification. And I say all but guarantee because with a win, a draw, and 2 losses, we could end up tied with Fiorentina on 71 points. We beat them 2-1 and they beat us 3-2, so we'd be tied 4-4 on aggregate over the two matches. The next tiebreaker is goal differential in the league. Our goal differential is currently plus 31, while Fiorentina's is plus 12, so they'd have to make up 19 goals over four matches, which seems unlikely. In the meantime, the club issued a statement advising that the players will go into Ritiro after the match. I joked on Twitter that the Retiro went well last time, of course, referencing the mutiny of 2019. Lionel pointed out that we did go into Retiro with Gattuso and that it worked quite well. I definitely think that is the spirit of this retreat, despite the conflicting reports. It was initially reported that the club ordered the retreat, then it was reported that the club and Spalletti made the decision together. I'm not sure I believe that. I've also seen reports that Spalletti convinced De Laurentiis to give the players 24 hours to go home and then start the Ritiro on Tuesday. Back to that core group of players, I think we will see a bit of a revolution this offseason. For me, there are very few players who absolutely must stay. Koulibaly, Rachmani, Di Lorenzo, Lobotka, Mertens, and Osimen. As far as I'm concerned, the rest can go. There are a number of players who will probably stay. I'd put Zanoli, Angisa, Zielinski, and Elmas in that category. But the reason I'd have no problem with any of those players leaving is because none of them are consistent. The problem, however, is De Laurentiis appears to be going back to the model of signing players before their prime and developing them into top talent. That means, by definition, these players are not serial winners. That's probably the invitation that the ADL out crowd needs to point the finger in his direction. He certainly deserves a share of the blame as well, but I'm not going to spend any time on De Laurentiis only because experience tells me that neither side of that debate will be convinced otherwise. Whoever you choose to blame, this season is effectively over. However you chose to react, whether you vented on social media, whether you cried, whether you broke stuff, I think, like myself, you will all be back watching on Saturday like the real fan that you are, es sempre Forza Napoli. That will do for part 1, in part 2 we'll review our latest Primavera match. Welcome to part 2 of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's review our Primavera match on Saturday against Fiorentina. Fiorentina came into this match sitting 5th in the table, so this was the latest of a stretch of fixtures against top teams in the league. Our last 4 games have been against 2nd place Inter. Then we played against Cagliari, who at that point had overtaken Inter for second place. And in the last round, we played against top of the table Roma. So our last four matches, including this one, were against teams in the top five of the league. 
Despite winning their last two, Fiorentina weren't in their best form ahead of this match. Their 1-0 win over Torino ended a four-match winless streak, and many of those draw points were at the hands of our direct rivals. After a loss to Atalanta, they drew Empoli, they drew Genoa, and then they lost to Lecce. Even the win over Torino was from a late penalty, though I have to say Fiorentina played really well in that match. They were nearly undone by Torino's keeper Alberto Milan. Fiorentina followed up that match with a convincing win over Spal midweek, which was concerning for us because Fiorentina have shown an ability to go on long win streaks this season. They won five in a row earlier in the season, and then their four-game win streak ended with that loss to Atalanta. Meanwhile, we pulled ourselves out of the relegation zone with our surprising win over Roma, but there's plenty of work to be done. We were only one point clear of Genoa and two points clear of Lecce, who were the two clubs in the relegation playout zone heading into this match. Neither side were missing any key players for this match, so with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Alberto Aquilani lined up in a 4-3-3 with Ivan Andonov in goal. Filippo Frizon and Christian Biagetti started at centre-back. Costantino Favazzulli started at left-back and Michael Coyote started at right-back. Giovanni Corradini started in the centre of the midfield with Ciro Capasso to his left and Alessandro Bianco to his right. Filippo Di Stefano started on the left wing. Vittorio Agostinelli started on the right wing. And Elian Tocci played at striker. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi went with the same squad he used against Cagliari and Roma. He lined up in a 3-5-2 formation with Huberti Dacic in goal. Davide Costanzo, Daniel Hisai, and Benedetto Barba played as the back three. Coli Sacco started in the center of the midfield with Gennaro Iacarino to his left and Antonio Vergara to his right. But in the attack, it played more like a 3-4-1-2. Vergara played as the trequartista and Sacco and Iacarino played in the pivot. Davide Acampa started at left wing back and Giuseppe D'Agostino started at right wing back. Finally, Antonio Cioffi and Giuseppe Ambrosino played as the dual strikers. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. This was a pretty wild match. I thought in some respects it was similar to the Roma match. One similarity was that we defended well and forced them to either shoot from distance or cross the ball from the wings. So even though both Roma and Fiorentina progressed the ball well, most of their chances were half chances. We saw that early in the match. In the 8th minute, Sacco fouled Bianco about 30 yards from the goal, but Agostinelli's free kick bounced harmlessly into the gloves of Idasiak. Then a minute later, Di Stefano cut in from the left wing and tried a tiragiro, but it finished well off target. I think Fiorentina have a real talent on their hands in Di Stefano. You're going to hear his name come up often in this review. Another similarity to the Roma match was that we took our chance early. In the 11th minute, Vergara made one of his many fantastic runs in this match before drawing a foul just outside the Fiorentina area. Ambrosino's free kick struck the wall and went out for a corner. Now the Azzurini shouted for a penalty, but it wasn't given. Chofi played the short corner to Vergara, who played an outswinging cross from the left wing. Ambrosino rose up to win the header over Frizon and placed the ball in the top corner past an outstretched Andonov. He scored in the 12th minute to give Napoli the lead against Roma, and he scored in the 11th minute in this one. That was his 17th goal of the season. Ambrosino scored in three consecutive matches, and he now has six goals in his last seven. Fiorentina responded well though and created their fair share of chances in the 14th minute Biagetti passed the ball down the line to Capasso. He played a clever back heel to Coyote down the right wing. 
Coyote squared the ball to Bianco, but Idacia kicked away his low shot. Then in the 22nd minute, Agostinelli crossed the ball to Tochi in the area. He did well to take the ball down at the spot, but he skied his shot over the bar. A few minutes later, Fiorentina created another chance in transition. Di Stefano played the ball wide to Agostinelli, but Barba came over to make an important block. Agostinelli got another chance in the 28th minute. Fiorentina progressed the ball with a number of short passes down the middle of the park. Agostinelli played a give-and-go with Di Stefano before going for a goal. It was a decent effort, but in the end, it was another routine save for Idasiak. So half an hour into the match, Napoli were still ahead 1-0. Now one of the differences between this match and the Roma one was that we scored a second. About 5 minutes after Trophy came close from a tight angle, Vergara created our next chance. He intercepted Di Stefano's pass for Corradini at the edge of the Napoli area. Vergara carried the ball through midfield and nearly lost the ball to Coyote but then he slid to maintain possession. Vergara passed to Trophy who cut to his right before putting a powerful shot on target. Andanov made the save but pushed the rebound straight to Ambrosino. He cut the ball back to Vergara who took the shot first time. The ball would have finished wide of the goal but it took a fortuitous deflection off of Biagetti and ended up in the back of the goal. Even though Vergara fully deserved the goal for his play in this match, it was correctly ruled an own goal. Either way, Napoli were up 2-0. Another difference in this match, however, was that we allowed Fiorentina to get back into it. Just before the break, Di Stefano played the ball to Agostinelli on the left wing. He crossed the ball to the second post. Tochi created some separation from Costanzo who simultaneously lost his man and misread the flight of the ball. Tochi headed the ball into the top corner to cut the lead in half. So with that, the first half ended 2-1 in favor of Napoli. Fiorentina started the second half really strong and nearly equalized immediately after the restart. Hisai played a dangerous pass backwards towards his own goal and Capasso got to the ball first. Fortunately, his shot finished well over the bar. Perhaps that was a sign of things to come though because Fiorentina scored the equalizer only a few minutes later. Vergara was dispossessed by Corradini before Fiorentina cycled the ball to Di Stefano on the left wing. He blew past D'Agostino towards the byline then cut the ball back towards the top of the 6 yard box. Costanzo appeared to be pulled down in the area by Tochi but the foul wasn't called. That might have just freed up the space for Capasso to get to the ball before Acampa. Capasso tucked his shot inside the far post to make the score 2-2. Like the Roma match, Fiorentina dominated the next 20 minutes or so and I was convinced that they would score a third. In the 51st minute, Di Stefano picked out Bianco who was wide open in the area but he took his eye off the ball for just a second and it rolled beneath his foot. A few minutes later, Di Stefano crossed the ball into the area. Vergara got a touch on the ball so it bounced towards Tochi. He tried an audacious bicycle kick and beat Idasiak but not the upright. As you can see, Di Stefano seemed to be involved in every Fiorentina attack. In the 58th minute, he dribbled past Marquisano and went for goal, but launched the ball over the net. Other than a weak effort from Ambrosino on a long ball from Sacco, we couldn't seem to create anything in the first part of the second half. Meanwhile, Fiorentina continued to push forward and probably should have scored about midway through the half. Krastev played an in-swinging cross from the right wing. Marquisano completely whiffed on the header so Di Stefano was able to control the ball in the area. He shot towards the bottom corner but again Idasic was there to make the save. Napoli finally woke up after that and it was fairly back and forth for the remainder of the match. We got a great chance shortly after that Di Stefano shot. Idasic played a long ball forward. 
Vergara took it down, fought off the challenges from Coyote and Bianco, and then slipped the ball through to D'Agostino. He had only the keeper to beat, but he missed the target. Then Fiorentina came back the other way and nearly scored from a corner. Bianco played an in-swinging cross from the left side. Krastev won the header, but Idasek made a fantastic save on the shot that was heading for the top corner. It seemed like this match was heading for a draw, but in the fifth minute of stoppage time, Vergara drew a foul in the area. That capped an unbelievable run from the midfielder. He saved the ball from going out to touch, then dribbled past Coyote near the left touchline. Coyote chased Vergara to the byline where he cut in and split between Coyote and Amatucci to get into the area. Coyote stretched for the ball and clipped Vergara's heel, so the official had no choice but to point to the penalty spot when he saw that. At that point, Ambrosino had already been replaced by Antonio Pesce, and Chofi had been replaced by Marquisano, so Iacarino stepped up and confidently drilled the ball into the bottom corner. That was his first goal of the season, and it could not have come at a more important moment. After missing most of the season with a serious knee issue, I was so happy to see Iacarino score what proved to be the winner. In fact, it was the final kick of the match. With the win, we've collected 7 points over those 4 matches against top 5 teams. Unfortunately, that only resulted in a moderate improvement as far as our position in the table goes. There was no bad result for us in the Milan-Bologna match because they were both 3 points clear of us. Bologna won 4-1, which means they remain 3 points clear of us, but we are now level with Milan on 39 points. That was probably a good result for us because we beat Milan in both fixtures, so we own the head-to-head -head advantage. Hellas Verona drew Sampdoria in a wild match on Monday that finished 4-4. That means we are level with Hellas Verona on 39 points as well. Lecce beat Pescara 5-1 to remain 2 points behind us, so really, the only positive result for us was Genoa's 1-1 draw against Roma. Even that wasn't a great result considering Roma are top of the table, we would have liked to see Roma win that match. Nevertheless, we extended the gap over Genoa to 3 points. So despite the good results of late, we still have not guaranteed ourselves survival. Our next match is absolutely massive, that's against Genoa on Friday. If we win that match, then we'd guarantee that Genoa cannot surpass us, which means we'd only have to fend off Lecce. After Genoa, we play against Spal and Hellas Verona. No match is a given, but you would expect us to beat Spal. Meanwhile, Lecce have a more difficult schedule. They play against Sampdoria, Roma, and Torino. That will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll review our latest Feminile match. Welcome to part 3 of the Forza Napoli podcast. We'll close the pod with a review of our Feminile match against Sassuolo on Sunday. It's been about 3 weeks since our last Feminile match, so let me give you a quick refresher on where things left off. We came into this match sitting 3rd from the bottom of the table, which is the final relegation position. We were 3 points back of Fiorentina and 4 points back of Pomigliano, with 3 rounds left to play. We were fortunate that Pomigliano only managed a draw in their match day 17 makeup game against Lazio. We missed a huge opportunity to make up some ground when we lost our match against Lazio in the previous round. That would have taken us out of the relegation zone. Meanwhile, Sassuolo came into this match sitting 4th in the table on 39 points. 
Sassuolo had a really strong start to the season where they seemed to be the most likely team to challenge Juve for the Scudetto. They had 11 wins, 1 draw, and only 2 losses through the first 14 rounds of the campaign. Since then, they've come back down to earth. Their 3-0 win over Pomigliano in the previous round was their first win in their last 5 matches. And yet, Lana Cleland was still second in the league with 11 goals, one behind Fiorentina's Daniela Sabatino, while Camila Dubkova was tied with a few players for third in the league with 6 assists. Giulia Domenichetti and Roberto Castorina were still missing Evi Popedinova and Depichatsi Nicolau for this match, but they did have Primavera player Marika Caputo in the squad as a reinforcement. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Sassuolo lined up in a 4-3-3 with Didi Leme in goal. Tamar Dongus and Maria Luisa Filangeri started at centre-back, with Davina Filtians at left-back and Erika Santoro at right-back. Mana Mihashi started in the centre of the midfield with Camila Dubkova to her left and Alice Parisi to her right. Lana Clellan started on the left wing, Giada Pondini started on the right wing, and Michela Cambiaghi started at striker. For Napoli, Domenichetti and Castorina made two changes to the squad they fielded against Lazio. They lined up in a 3-5-2 with Yolanda Aguirre in goal over Raquel Lebaldi. Lana Golob started in the center of the back line with Paola Di Marino to her left and Emily Garnier to her right. Sedia Bramson started at left wing back and Kaya Ertsen started at right wing back. Sara Tui started in the center of the midfield with Claudia Mauri to her left and Emma Eriko to her right. Mauri started over Emma Severini. Finally, Eleonora Goldoni and Soleheims played as the dual strikers. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. Napoli were definitely the more threatening side in the first half, and frankly, I'm amazed that we weren't able to score. Goldoni had a couple of chances early in the half. In the 10th minute, Aguirre played a long ball deep into the Sassuolo half. Filangetti tried to take the ball down, but her touch was heavy and went straight to Goldoni. She tried an audacious volley from outside the area, but the shot finished well over the goal. Then a couple of minutes later, Santoro played a back pass straight to Goldoni. She carried the ball into the area where she appeared to lose the ball, then she won it back and appeared to have a free shot. Unfortunately, Mihashi came flying in and made a really important block. Ertsen played the ensuing corner kick short to Eriko, who returned the ball to Ertsen. Ertsen overhit her cross from the left wing, and in doing so, she nearly scored, but the ball hit the bar and stayed out. The long ball seemed to be working really well for us in the first half. In the 21st minute, Aguirre played a long ball, and Goldoni flicked it on at about midfield. Ertsen won the second ball with a header through to Sola. She carried to the edge of the area and didn't make great contact on the shot, so Lemmy watched the ball roll harmlessly wide of the goal. A minute later, Aguirre played the long ball again. This time, Sole won the header before Goldoni played the ball out wide to Ertsen. She carried towards the touchline before playing the cross. Santoro blocked the cross, but the ball came off her hand and Napoli were awarded a penalty. And if I'm being honest, I think that penalty was pretty harsh. Santoro's arm was down, maybe her arm was slightly away from her body, but I think that was just the normal movement of the arm when you run. In any event, Sola stepped up to take the penalty. She tried to blast the ball straight down the middle of the goal, but Lemmy left her arm out to block the shot. Then the rebound bounced off the top of the bar and finally finished on the roof of the goal. Maybe that was some poetic justice for what I thought was a harsh penalty. Now, I don't think the penalty was terribly struck, but I also don't understand why players use power when they go straight down the middle. You need to take a little bit off of the shot 
when you go down the middle to give the keeper time to dive out of the way. I'm also not exactly sure why Sole took the penalty over Goldoni. Perhaps it's because Goldoni hasn't played a whole lot since Domenichetti and Castorino took over, but in the first half of the season, she was both captain and designated penalty taker. Sole has played well enough, but she hasn't exactly been our most prolific goal scorer. However, she was unlucky not to score in the 27th minute. Maori made an excellent slide tackle on the left side before saving the ball and playing a diagonal ball to Goldoni. Goldoni carried to the edge of the area before she squared it to Sole. Her low shot beat Leme, but hit the upright and stayed out. Our next chance came a few minutes later. This time, Eriko played a long chip to Sole in the area. She laid the ball off to Saratui, but the pass was a little bit heavy. Tui chased down the ball, turned, and shot on target, but she caught too much of the goal, and Lemmy made the save. Meanwhile, Sassuolo created very few chances in the half, largely because of our strong defensive play, particularly from Golob. She was excellent at the back, but the team as a whole was very organized. We didn't press, instead we stayed compact and kept our structure. That forced Sassuolo to go long, and more often than not, Aguirre was there to collect any balls in the area. Other than a couple of half chances early in the match, Sassuolo didn't get a quality goal scoring opportunity until the dying minutes of the half. The chance came from a corner kick. Cleland played an outswinging corner from the right side. Dubkova won the header, but the shot hit the upright and stayed out. So there were plenty of chances in the first half, which ended nil-nil. The second half was almost the opposite of the first, with Sassuolo creating the lion's share of the chances. The first big chance of the half came in the 57th minute when Dubkova played the ball down the line to Parisi. She cut the ball back to Cleland at the edge of the 6-yard box, but somehow Cleland skied the ball over the bar. Perhaps Garnier's pressure was enough to disrupt Cleland and force the miss. Cleland came close again in the 73rd minute, this time from a corner kick. Parisi played an in-swinging cross from the right side. Maori got a touch on the ball, but not enough to clear the danger. Cleland controlled the ball at the top of the box and struck it well on the half volley, but the shot just missed the bottom corner. Sassuolo's problem in this match was their finishing was really poor. Aside from those two chances I just mentioned, Mihashi, Cleland, and Parisi all had chances, and all three times, they put the ball well over the bar. Now, the final five minutes of the match were pretty frantic with both sides creating chances. After both Ertzin and Parisi had weak efforts stopped by the opposing goalkeepers, we got our first big chance of the half. Saratui played the ball over the top to Ertzin. She outpaced Filtians to the ball and got behind the defender. Ertzin carried into the area and only had the keeper to beat, but Lemay just got a foot on the low shot to keep it out. In truth, Ertzin could have done better on the finish. A slightly more accurate shot would have easily found the bottom corner. Instead, the score remained nil-nil. Moments later, Di Marino intercepted Iriguchi's pass for Dubkova. Napoli countered again through Saratui, who played substitute Romina Pina into the area. Like Ertzin, she had only Lemay to beat, but she went for the near post and missed the target. Sassuolo came back the other way with a few big chances of their own. First, in the 87th minute, Dubkova crossed the ball from the left wing. Kambiagi won the header at the near post, but she just missed the top corner of the goal. Then in the first minute of stoppage time, Filangeri won the long ball from Aguirre. Substitute Claudia Ferrato played the ball to Dubkova in the area. She probably should have taken the shot first time towards the bottom corner, but she took an extra touch and Aguirre made the save at the near post. 
So both sides had their chances, but in the end, the match finished nil-nil. This was another missed opportunity for us, which has been a bit of a common theme this season. Fortunately, Roma beat Fiorentina 3-2 and Milan beat Pomigliano 6-2, so we actually gained ground on both of them. And because Fiorentina play against Pomigliano in the next round, we still control our own fate. If Pomigliano win that match, then we could move one point clear of Fiorentina with a win over Empoli. If they draw, then we could draw level with Fiorentina with a win over Empoli, but we own the head-to-head advantage over Fiorentina, so that would still take us out of the relegation zone. And if Fiorentina win, then we could pull within a single point of Pomigliano with a win over Empoli. Our final match of the season is against Pomigliano, so our fate would then be decided in the final match of the season. In any case, the next round of Serie A Femminile will be pretty exciting and pretty nerve-wracking. The women are off this week, but they'll be back for the penultimate round of the season on May the 7th. So that is where I'll leave it. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Fortsanopoly Pod. I'll be back in a few days to preview our match against Sassuolo, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre! Podcast Network.